0: We'll be in Acts chapter 1 for the first study of our time together, Acts chapter 1. We've been uh, studying through the book of Luke in our auditorium class and having concluded that study in a previous quarter, we began the study of Acts a week ago uh, today And I didn't get through Acts chapter 1 and I talked about how we'll finish that up the next class and then I thought about how daunting a task it would be to fit Acts 1 verses 9 through the end of the chapter and Acts 2 in one class and I thought I'll I'll attempt to put together a, a thought provoking and practical lesson with the remainder of Acts chapter 1. You might wonder how that's going to be as you know the the details of the last part of Acts chapter 1 but I think that there's some Um, interesting and practical and beneficial things for us to glean from the text. And if you're not in the adult class, you're teaching one of the other classes or you're a student in one of the other classes, I think that you'll be able to follow along just fine, and I hope that we can find some benefit in this study. In Acts chapter 1, Luke uh, is writing as he follows up with his gospel account of the things that Jesus said and did while he walked on earth in his three-year ministry, he would continue to reveal by the Holy Spirit's inspiration the events that would transpire throughout the beginning and um, the tenure of the apostles on earth of the Messianic kingdom that Jesus said he would set up, that he died for to purchase with his own Blood And so these words describe the history of Jesus' work continuing through the revelation of the Holy Spirit and the witness of the inspired apostles. And we covered the first eight verses in our study where Luke spoke about how within the 40 days after Jesus' resurrection, he appeared to his disciples with many infallible proofs. It was very certain to the disciples that he had raised from the dead. He spoke to them about the kingdom of God that he would establish, which included things like the preaching of the gospel um, in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and all the ends of the earth. They'd be witnesses of the resurrected Christ. They'd preach repentance and remission of sins and baptism. They'd preach all that pertains to the kingdom of God. One of the things necessary for their preaching and fulfillment of their ministry as apostles would be the promise of the Father that is the Holy Spirit. We talked about that at some length. But then you notice there in Acts chapter 1 and in verse 9, Jesus ascends. And the next time He returns will be for judgment and the end of time. And between His ascension... And what we're going to study in Acts chapter 2 are a few days of waiting and anticipation, but certainly devotion and activity of faith with these disciples before the kingdom is established. And I think there's a lot of things that we can learn from this. Read with me, if you will, beginning in verse 9 of Acts chapter 1. Luke records that when he, Jesus, had spoken these things while they watched... He was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. I want us to consider, firstly, that Jesus ascended and he is going to return, as the angel mentioned, But we don't wait and watch for him with our eyes. This is not about physical looking. As we anticipate his return as he had left earth and they saw him disappear into the clouds and gazed up into heaven looking for another glimpse of the one that they loved so dearly, we're not going to watch for him with our eyes. And we'll get to that in a moment in its practical sense. But I want us to think about his ascension very briefly. And we looked at this a little bit in our last class. But he ascended. It wasn't his purpose to stay and remain on earth. In fact, his time on earth was very limited within his lifespan of some 33 years. His ministry only spanning a few of those 33 years. And when he returns, it's not to step foot back on earth, but to gather up his saints for eternity to go to their promised rest. And so his time on earth is finished, but his work is not finished. His ascension is key in regard to his work as the Messiah. In Acts chapter 2, we'll notice in verse 30 that he would be raised to sit on a throne. And then in verse 33 of acts chapter 2 he is exalted to the right hand of god and so it was necessary that he came to earth and died but also that he would be raised from the dead but not just raised from the dead to still walk around on the earth but to ascend into an exalted state of of kingship of power and of glory he would ascend to receive his kingdom and Daniel chapter 7, we read of that prophecy in verse 13. Daniel says he was watching in the night visions and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days. Ancient of Days is God. He's not speaking about his return to earth. He's speaking about him coming up to the Ancient of Days. And it says in verse 14 of Daniel 7, then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. That tells us something that we need to remember as we have conversations with some in the world that the kingdom of the Messiah is not to be received when he comes back to earth, but the kingdom of the Messiah was received when he ascended to heaven. That's what Daniel prophesied about. And that's what Jesus spoke about as we had studied in Luke, the 19th chapter. Notice in Luke chapter 19, Jesus spoke a parable of a king that would come back to judge his people and it speaks about the minas that were left them to further his work and how based on their activity or lack of activity they would be either rewarded with cities or they would be punished and destroyed. There in Luke 19 and verse 11 it says as Jesus is nearing the end of his ministry, that as they heard these things, he spoke another parable, and it gives us the reason why he speaks this parable. This is important in Luke nineteen eleven because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. And so this parable has to do with Jesus correcting those false notions that the kingdom was imminent and that it would happen when he gets into Jerusalem. They're thinking, of course, of a physical kingdom. So he said in verse 12, A certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. He's that nobleman of the parable. And so he goes away into a far country, which would be heaven, ascended, exalted to receive the kingdom. And I want us to notice there in verse 15 what his return would be indicative of. It was when he returned, having received the kingdom, then he commanded these servants to whom he had given Money ultimately to give an account. And so he goes away to receive the kingdom. His return is not to receive the kingdom. His return is to judge and reward. He has received his kingdom. And so he ascended, it was necessary, to receive the kingdom of prophecy, but also to for the apostles to receive the kingdom. We might remember that in Luke 22 how he told the apostles in verse 28, you are those who have continued with me in my trials and I bestow upon you a kingdom just as my father bestowed one upon me that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, sitting on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. The word kingdom is a word which Art and Gingrich says means the act of ruling. And certainly they would rule on those thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. He would give them the keys of the kingdom, he told Peter and the apostles in Acts the 16th, or Matthew the sixteenth chapter. And so they would have authority and they would reign. And his ascension was necessary for them to assume that role of authority and assume that role of judgment in the kingdom. Something else we talked about in Acts chapter 1. Upon his ascension, he would give them the promise of the Father, there in verse 5 of Acts 1. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And he explained in verse 8 that you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And the reason that promise was necessary is that it's joined together with their ability to fulfill their work as being witnesses to him in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. In John chapter 14, 15, and 16, The Spirit is promised to the apostles and the apostles only. And in chapter 15, at the end of that chapter, he speaks about how they will be witnesses because they had been with him. But also the Spirit would testify. And so it's not eyewitness testimony alone, but inspired eyewitness testimony with the attendant signs and wonders that confirmed the testimony. But what I really want us to think about here is that his ascension was always with promise to return. So back there in the parable of the minas in Luke 19 and in verse 26, we see that as he had received the kingdom and he returned in verse 15, that he would have those workers and servants that he left give an account of what he left them to further. And it says there in Luke 22 and in verse 26, I say to you, Jesus says that to everyone who has will be given, and from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. But bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. The man that was left with ten minus and had furthered them was given ten cities. And it's simply speaking of reward, of inclusion in the exalted state of the kingdom, and the finality of being with. God in heaven, the one that furthered the five minas was also given five cities. But then the one that was only left with one mina, who did not further it, but buried it. It was taken from him and he was punished along with the enemies of the king. And so he ascends and he's going to return and brethren, he's going to judge even his people. For the things that they're doing in the meantime. And I think that's key as we look to Acts chapter 1 and in verses 9 through 11 when they're standing and gazing into heaven and those angels said men of Galilee why do you stand gazing up into heaven and then they said this Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven you don't need to stand looking it'll be obvious when he comes again And as you're standing and gazing you're not acting and that's the implication As you stand here watching, you are not doing. And Jesus left so that you could start doing. There would be something they wait for that will study on the day of Pentecost that was necessary for them to carry out their work fully. But in the meantime, they still live by faith. And we see that manifest as they're together with one accord and they're praying and they're anticipating the kingdom. He told them they would need to return to Jerusalem and that would be an act of obedience that they had not yet accomplished. And they would return about a Sabbath day's journey and fulfill that command of Jesus. Get to work. Stop waiting around. And I think that we need to realize that we wait for Jesus, but it's not a passive, inactive waiting. It is a constant activity of faith. You might remember in 2 Corinthians 5 and in verse 7, speaking of the anticipation of the resurrection body, The apostle Paul says we walk by faith and not by sight. We want to be with the Lord. And as as long as we're in the body, we're absent from the Lord. Though we're confident about this reunion with him in heaven for eternity. We don't see it yet. And so we walk by faith, not by sight. But it's interesting that Paul goes on in that very context in 2 Corinthians 5 and in verse 16. And he says this, therefore, from now on we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know him thus no longer. Not going to see Jesus according to the flesh as we live life on this earth until he appears again in his glorified state and judges us. And so we walk by faith, not by sight. And there's so many people in the world who claim to look forward to that great day of glory and salvation and anticipate it. And they're looking for things that they can see with their visual eyes and they're making predictions. And what the angels are implying to them is that there's nothing to look for except for looking through the eyes of faith and obedience to the word of God. I think we see a little bit about that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I want us to notice And be impressed first in first Thessalonians five and verse one, where Paul says concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. What do you mean, Paul, concerning the times and the seasons? You have no need. He had just talked about the Lord's return where the dead in Christ would be raised the last day and that they would be caught up with the Lord together forever, always and be with the Lord. That final day that final activity. I don't need to tell you about when that's going to happen You already know i've already told you what do you mean by that though paul verse 2 For you yourselves know perfectly That the day of the lord so comes as a thief in the night. In other words, it's unexpected You don't know you can't know any more than you would know a thief is going to break in And plunder your house. That's the point. You cannot find out when it's going to happen any more than you can find out a random thief that you don't know about from Adam is going to break into your house That's his point And so all these people trying to discern the times and the seasons and that it's just around the corner Need to listen to what Paul is saying here in these two verses He told us about how we know you can't know it could be any moment any day And so how are you ready? He says in verse three, they say peace and safety and sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. You don't know. You can you can reason about when your due date will be women, but you don't know the exact second. You don't know the exact moment. That's the that's the point. It's a sudden thing. And they think they're okay, but they're not ready. So he says in verse four, you, brethren, are not in darkness that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are sons of light and sons of the day, not of darkness. Therefore, do not sleep as others do, but watch and be sober, not with your eyes, but with faith. God didn't appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation. But I want us to notice how we watch in verse eight. We put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. And so we don't watch with our eyes. We watch by living faithfully before God which tells me if we're not working on our faith, if we're not drawing near to God, then we're not ready for that day. It's going to take us completely off guard and not just in the sense that it could happen two seconds from now and we don't know. But in the sense of us not being prepared to give an answer for what we've done, not be prepared with faithfulness, we watch with our faith as we submit to God. And that's a lesson we learn from Acts chapter 1. But there's something else impressive, I think. You notice there it says they returned to Jerusalem and they were there in an upper room. All the apostles, verse 13, but also verse 14, they continued with one accord. It mentions that the women were there and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. We'll talk about that in a moment. I want us to be impressed by that word. These all continued with one accord in prayer. Something dramatic has changed. Even within the Jewish nation and religious economy, there was disunity and division. There were the Pharisees, there were the Sadducees, there were the Herodians, there were the lay people and the priests, and there's all of these divisions. And then within the very disciples of Jesus, you remember in Luke 22 and in verse 24, they disputed about greatness. Who's going to be the best in this kingdom of us 12? Who's going to be the top dog? And in that very context, the setting of the upper room, Jesus even said that you're going to all stumble because of me this night. As it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So there's not harmony. There's not solidity. There's, there's not the kind of faith that they need. There is disunity, there is confusion, there is separation. And even after the death of Jesus and his resurrection, you remember in Mark chapter 16 and in verse 12, Mark records that after that he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country and they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. In John 20 and in verse 19, as they are in that upper room, also in unbelief. It says they were assembled and the door was shut for fear of the Jews. And so you've got this dramatic transformation where they're in this upper room with one accord, with faith and confidence and a resolute desire to do the Lord's will as they await the kingdom. And it's because of what Jesus has accomplished. You see the resurrection of Christ, which we'll see its power in the next point, as it's life-changing, one of the effects that it has is among those who believe it and respond to it appropriately by faith is it knits them together a tie that binds like no other. We sing that song, Blessed Be the Tie That Binds. And this is the tie that it's talking about. Jameson Fawcett and Brown in their commentary said, it's a knit by a bond stronger than death. And I don't know exactly exactly, what death he's referring to, but I imagine the death of Jesus that caused them to sorrow together. This bond is stronger because it's the tie that binds them in his life, and his victory. We weep with those who weep. We feel each other's pain and we feel each other's anguish. And the disciples in that upper room after Jesus' death, before they knew of his resurrection, were sorrowful and fearful, but now they're in an upper room and they've got the closest bond they could ever imagine because of his life. It's the Greek word hamathudon. It means with one mind or purpose or impulse. And so the New Standard Bible renders the verse that these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer. In the outline of biblical usage, it comments on this word saying that it's a unique Greek word. Use 10 of its 12 New Testament occurrences in the book of Acts, and it helps us understand the uniqueness of the Christian community. Hamathumadon is a compound of two words, meaning to rush along and in unison, and the image is almost musical, it comments. A number of notes are sounded, which while different, harmonize in pitch and tone as the instruments of a great concert under the direction of the concert master. So the Holy Spirit blends together the lives of members of Christ's church, and it's a beautiful sentiment. You've got men and women and children, slaves and free. You've got people from all walks of life, fishermen and tax collectors. You've got women and men who were involved in sinful activities until Jesus came along and convinced them to change. And they're all with one passion, with one mind, with one focus and service. And this was Jesus's desire, wasn't it? Remember in John 17, in verse 20, he speaks about in his prayer to the Father that he doesn't pray for these alone, but for those who will believe in me through their word, that is the apostles, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may be one in us, and that the world may believe that you sent me. The world needs to believe you sent me, and one of the greatest evidences of that is the diversity of people that are with one accord. There's nothing under the sun that can unify people like this. And brethren, that's what glorifies God. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul speaks about the mystery that is to God's glory in the church. And the big part of that glorifying God is how two people as radically different as Jews and Gentiles, as pagans and Israelites, could be one man in Christ. In Psalm 133, the Holy Spirit records Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron running down on the edge of his garments. It's like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing. How beautiful is it for brethren to dwell together in unity? And brethren, that means we need to endeavor to keep that unity. This is worth fighting for. This is worth guarding. This is worth our attention and energy. In Ephesians chapter four, he talked about how we should endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. He speaks there about the way we do that and faithfulness walk worthy of the calling with which you are called. And in verse two and lowliness and gentleness of mind with long suffering, bearing with one another. And so this humility and care for one another will keep the unity of, of the Spirit, with effort, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. It takes work. It takes effort. It takes sacrifice. It takes peace and the bond of peace. It takes the direction of God's will and the provision of His oneness as there's one body and Spirit and hope and Lord and faith and baptism and God and Father of all. This is unity that the kingdom is all about. And we should rejoice in it and we should endeavor to protect it. Also, what we learn of in Acts chapter 1, especially there in verse 14, that same context, is that the resurrection of Jesus is life-changing because you notice not only is there unity now that is provided for by the resurrection of Christ and His victory, but you notice there who is among the number. It speaks about the women who are the Galilean women who followed him in his ministry beginning there in Luke chapter 8, as we had recently studied. But it mentions Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Jesus' brothers. And that's significant. It tells us something about what the resurrection of Jesus affected in their life. You remember in Luke's gospel how the shepherds appeared to Mary and spoke about who her son would be, that unto her would be born a Savior, Christ the Lord, and there would be peace and good tidings toward men. And how it says in Luke 9, 2 and verse 19, she kept these things and pondered them in her heart. And then likewise, at the end of that chapter in Luke 2 and verse 51, after he said, "You must, I must be about my father's business, when he was at the young age of 12, it said that she kept all these things in her heart. What we start seeing is a progression of Mary's faith. But there's a challenge for Mary because Jesus is not Just anyone to her. It's her son. And I think that we see the power of his resurrection and her ability to separate from that closeness to him as his mother and now as her Lord. You might remember in John, the second chapter, when she manifested a faith of sorts, when she told the servants there to obey him, do whatever he tells you to do. And he would turn the water into wine Remember what Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And it's interesting that that book ends with John 19 when Jesus hanging on the cross looks at his mother and says, woman, behold, your son to John, the apostle that loved Jesus. And he said to the disciple, behold, your mother. And I think from the beginning of his ministry to the end of his ministry, he's trying to lead Mary to the kind of faith which sees the value in his relationship to her as her Lord and her God over and above a mother's love for a child. And it should show us how intense the relationship with Christ is that even it excels one of the most intimate relationships we have on this earth. And you remember in Luke 11 and verse 27, when one said, blessed is the womb that bore you to Jesus and the breast which nursed you. And he said more than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And so she, through all the pain and anguish of seeing her son die on the cross, has now excelled through his victory in life and ascension to glory to have this kind of faith. Hendrickson in his commentary said, as she is there with the disciples, That Mary not only gave birth to her son, she also assisted with the birth of the church. Now she's not worried about some physical relationship. She's the same as these disciples. And she's going to assist in the start of the church. And we see the same significance with his brothers. In John chapter 7, it tells us that his brothers did not believe in him. Yet they're here, aren't they? And so they rejected who he claimed to be within his ministry, and surely were confused about the things he was saying and what he was doing. But now they're here in the upper room with the disciples. And like Mary, their mother, they would come to understand the surpassing glory and power of a relationship with him as Savior, not as friend, not as brother, not as mother. When others came to him and uh, when, when his family came to him, Jesus, that is, and requested him, and they said, your mother and brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. He said, my mother and brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. And they came to an understanding of that. But it was through the resurrection. What was James doing there? What was Joseph doing there? What was Judas doing there? What were his brothers doing there? Simon. In 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 7, among the many that Jesus appeared to, in fact, over 500 at one time, In distinction from the apostles there in verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 15, he appeared to James. And it's in reference to the Lord's brother. And so as he did not believe him before, he believes him now. And in Galatians 2 and verse 9, we read that James is a pillar in the church in Jerusalem. Resurrection of Jesus is life-changing. He had so many doubts up to this point, but when he was raised from the dead and appeared to his brother, it left no doubt in James' mind. He wrote an epistle. God used him. Jude wrote an epistle. God used him. And in those epistles, they did not refer to themselves as brothers of the Lord, but bondservants of Jesus Christ. Resurrection of Christ is life changing. You see in this upper room, Mary, the brothers of Jesus, the hundred and twenty that will be discussed in the next few verses The disciples of the Lord, the apostles of Christ, they weren't mourning a dead brother, a dead son, a dead friend. They were serving a risen Savior. Resurrection of Christ is life changing. And lastly, but certainly not least, we learn from what Peter says about Judas that we decide the place we go to. In verse 25, speaking of Matthias taking the place of Judas as they had casted lots and left it into the Lord's hands, not by chance. It says that it was necessary because he took part in this ministry and apostleship uh, for him to take part in the ministry and apostleship, the one that would be chosen from which Judas by transgression fell that he might go to his own place. That is a an idiom in reference to the place of punishment. Torments in Hades or the ultimate punishment as it's consummated in the fires of Gehenna. But What's interesting is that he says back there in Verse 16, men and brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled. And I believe if we just think of the language, I didn't leave myself enough time to go through this in more detail. But if we look at the language, he's referring to the Psalms that are quoted in verses 20. Let his dwelling place be desolate, let no one live in it, let another take his office, because the word had to be is the verb that is imperfect and active. In other words, what took place back here in his betrayal as Jesus even quoted from Psalm 41 in John chapter 13 about one betraying him being Judas that had to be fulfilled was fulfilled and there is more still left to be fulfilled it was in the imperfect sense and it had to be though and I think that's troubling he's saying Judas had to betray Jesus and his place had to be made desolate His place had to be taken by another and he had to go to his own place to eternal punishment. And that might be troubling to us. What do you mean he had to do that? Well, the had to is referencing the omniscience of God. God knew it would happen and God's not wrong. It had to happen, but it's not taking away the free will of Judas. Pharaoh's heart had to be hardened. God told Moses that he would not let the people go. He knows Pharaoh's character and he knows what Pharaoh will do. It had to happen because God knows, but not because Pharaoh didn't have a choice. He gave him multiple choices. And so what we need to realize in this is not the doctrine of predestination, of foreordination in the sense of an individual's eternal whereabouts, but of the omniscience of God and the knowledge of a man's character And the fact that when that man is left up to his own free will, he decided his own fate. There in Luke chapter six, it says that Jesus spent all night in prayer before appointing his apostles. And there in verse 16, lo and behold, is the traitor Judas, the son of James and Judas Iscariot. But you remember how Luke words that by inspiration who also became a traitor. I'm not willing to accept that Jesus chose an ungodly, traitorous man from the beginning. He spent all night in prayer. This was not a flippant decision. This was not without caution. This was in deep meditation and fellowship with God. But he knew what he would become, not what he is, what he would become. And I think that's impressive. In Luke chapter 12, you remember Jesus warned about covetousness. Judas was there. But in John chapter 12, it tells us that as he was put in charge of the treasury, he stole from it. And as he was frustrated about Mary wasting that fragrant, costly oil, truly he wasn't concerned of the poor, but he just wanted to pocket it for himself. And so here's a man who has a proclivity to covetousness, who knowing that took advantage of his place as treasurer. And instead of getting out of that and having Jesus put someone else forward, Instead of asking Jesus for help, asking his brethren for aid, he fed his hunger for money. And so in John chapter 13, it said that Jesus said, the one who I dip the bread in and give to is the traitor. And then having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas. And then that's when he says, what you do, do quickly. And we might be inclined to think, go betray me quickly. I think he's giving him another chance. You can go betray me but do it quickly. If you're going to decide to change, do it quickly. He's not forcing Judas's hand. But Judas goes and he takes those 30 pieces of silver to betray his Lord, and the rest is history. He had a choice, and we have a choice. In Matthew chapter 7 and verse 13, Jesus said this early in his ministry, Enter by the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. I want to tell you that there are two destinations that are prepared destinations for prepared people. And each decision we make, each step we take is in preparation for one of those two places. It didn't happen overnight for Judas. He was chosen to be an ambassador of Christ and he became a traitor. But it was step by step by step to the point that he was so overwhelmed with his enticement for money and avarice. That he betrayed his Lord. I don't think he enjoyed doing that, but that's how strong the urge was because he fed it the whole time he walked with Jesus. Every step we take has eternal implications, and consequences. We are preparing ourselves for the place we are to go, whether destruction or eternal life. Certainly, I hope that this study was helpful to you, it was practical, and that we're better equipped to serve our Lord. Before we dismiss to our classes, we'll be led in a word of closing prayer.